Dear listeners, are you tired of the endless cycle of fad diets and extreme measures? It's time to wake up to a better weight loss solution with Robody. As someone who's been through the ups and downs of weight loss, I know firsthand the challenge of trying to find what will stick. That's why if I qualified for Robody today, I'd jump at the chance for a scientifically backed program that supports long-term success. With Robody, you'll gain access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market, paired with personalized lifestyle changes. Over 200,000 people have already chosen Row to help them lose weight. Say goodbye to the roller coaster of weight loss dreams and hello to sustainable, real results with Robody. Go to row.co slash snoozecast. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash snoozecast. Welcome to Snoozecast, a podcast designed to help you fall asleep. Find us at snoozecast.com and now also on YouTube. While you are on our channel, be sure to hit the subscribe button. If you enjoy our show, please write a review on the Apple Podcasts app or at podchaser.com slash snoozecast. Here is a recent review we loved. The subject line is, Best Adult Sleep Podcast You Will Find. I have tried many podcasts to help me fall asleep as I have struggled with insomnia for over 40 years. Snoozecast has been a life changer. Well, sleep changer. Snoozecast's choice of stories and manner of delivery always leads to me falling asleep much faster than other podcasts or trying to sleep without anything. I especially love the Sherlock Holmes stories. If you have trouble getting to sleep, Snoozecast is by far the best podcast to help. And thank you to whoever wrote that review. It really made us smile, and we are so happy to help you fall asleep. This episode is brought to you by your local blacksmiths. Tonight, will rebroadcast the opening to The Adventure of the Speckled Band from The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, published in 1891 and written by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. The conclusion episode will air next. The story tells of Helen Stoner, a soon-to-be-married young woman who suspects her stepfather may be trying to kill her in order to retain control of her inheritance. Convinced of her stepfather's intentions, she turns to Holmes for help. The Speckled Band is a classic locked room mystery that deals with the themes of parental greed, inheritance, and freedom. Tinged with gothic elements, it is considered by many 
to be one of Doyle's finest works, with the author himself calling it his best story. Let's get cozy. Close your eyes. Relax your body into the softness of your bed. Now, take a few deep breaths. On glancing over my notes of the 70-odd cases in which I have, during the last eight years, studied the methods of my friend Sherlock Holmes. I find many tragic, some comic, a large number merely strange, but none commonplace, for working as he did rather for the love of his art than for the acquirement of wealth. He refused to associate himself with any investigation which did not tend towards the unusual and even the fantastic. Of all these varied cases, however, I cannot recall any which presented more singular features than that which was associated with the well-known Surrey family of the Roylots The events in question occurred in the early days of my association with Holmes when we were sharing rooms as bachelors in Baker Street. It is possible that I might have placed them upon record before, but a promise of secrecy was made at the time from which I have only been freed during the last month by the untimely death of the lady to whom the pledge was given. It is perhaps as well that the facts should now come to light, for I have reasons to know that there are widespread rumors as to the death of Dr. Grimsby Roylott, which tend to make the matter even more terrible than the truth. It was early, in April, in the year 83, that I woke one morning to find Sherlock Holmes standing, fully dressed, by the side of my bed. He was a late riser, as a rule, and as the clock on the mantelpiece showed me that it was only a quarter past seven, I blinked up at him in some surprise and perhaps just a little resentment, for I myself regular in my habits. Very sorry to knock you up, Watson, said he, but it's the common lot this morning. Mr. Hudson has been knocked up. She retorted upon me, and I on you. What is it then? A fire? No. A client. It seems that a young lady has arrived 
in a considerable state of excitement, who insists upon seeing me. She is waiting now in the sitting room. Now, when young ladies wander about the metropolis at this hour of the morning and knock sleepy people up out of their beds, I presume that it is something very pressing which they have to communicate. Should it prove to be an interesting case, you would, I am sure, wish to follow it from the outset. I thought, at any rate, that I should call you and give you the chance. My dear fellow, I would not miss it for anything. I had no keener pleasure than in following Holmes in his professional investigations and in admiring the rapid deductions, as swift as intuitions, and yet always founded on a logical basis with which he unraveled the problems which were submitted to him. I rapidly threw on my clothes and was ready in a few minutes. A lady dressed in black and heavily veiled, who had been sitting in the window, rose as we entered. Good morning, madam, said Holmes, with cheer. My name is Sherlock Holmes. This is my intimate friend and associate, Dr. Watson, before whom you can speak as freely as before myself. I am glad to see that Mrs. Hudson has had the good sense to light the fire. Pray draw up to it, and I shall order you a cup of hot coffee, for I observe that you are shivering. It is not cold which makes me shiver, said the woman in a low voice, changing her seat as requested. What then? It is fear, Mr. Holmes. It is terror. She raised her veil as she spoke, and we could see that she was indeed in a pitiable state of agitation, her face all drawn and gray, with restless, frightened eyes like those of some hunted animal. Her features and figure were those of a woman of thirty, but her hair was shot with premature gray, and her expression was wary and haggard. Sherlock Holmes ran her over with one of his quick, all-comprehensive glances. You must not fear, said he soothingly, bending forward and patting her forearm. We shall soon set matters right, I have no doubt. You have come in by train this morning, I see. You know me, then? No, but I observe the second half of a return ticket in the palm of your left glove. You must have started early, and yet you had a good drive in a dog cart along heavy roads before you reached the station. The lady gave a violent start and stared in bewilderment at my companion. There is no mystery, my dear madam, said he, smiling. 
the left arm of your jacket is spattered with mud in no less than seven places. The marks are perfectly fresh. There is no vehicle save a dog cart which throws up mud in that way. And then only when you sit on the left-hand side of the driver. Whatever your reasons may be, you are perfectly correct, said she. I started from home before six, reached Leatherhead at twenty past, and came in by the first train to Waterloo. Sir, I can stand this strain no longer. I shall go mad if it continues. I have no one to turn to, none, save only one who cares for me. And he, poor fellow, can be of little aid. I have heard of you, Mr. Holmes. I have heard of you from Mrs. Farintosh, whom you helped in the hour of her sore need. It was from her that I had your address. Sir, do you not think that you could help me? And at least throw a little light through the dense darkness which surrounds me? At present, it is out of my power to reward you for your services, but in a month or six weeks, I shall be married with the control of my own income, and then, at least, you shall not find me ungrateful. Holmes turned to his desk and, unlocking it, drew out a small case book, which he consulted. Farintosh, said he, ah, yes, I recall the case. It was considered with an opal tiara. I think it was before your time, Watson. I can only say, madam, that I shall be happy to devote the same care to your case as I did to that of your friend. As to reward, my profession is its own reward, but you are at liberty to defray whatever expenses I may be put to at the time which suits you best. And now I beg that you will lay before us everything that may help us in forming an opinion upon the matter. Alas, replied our visitor, the very horror of my situation lies in the fact that my fears are so vague and my suspicions depend so entirely upon small points which might seem trivial to another that even he to whom of all others I have a right to look for help and advice looks upon all that I tell him about it as the fancies of a nervous woman. He does not say so, but I can read it from his soothing answers and averted eyes. But I have heard, Mr. Holmes, that you can see deeply into the manifold wickedness of the human heart. You may advise me how to walk amid the dangers which encompass me. I am all attention, madam. My name 
is Helen Stoner, and I am living with my stepfather, who is the last survivor of one of the oldest Saxon families in England, the Roylots, on the western border of Surrey. Holmes nodded his head. The name is familiar to me, said he. The family was at one time among the richest in England, and the estates extended over the borders into Berkshire in the north and Hampshire in the west. In the last century, however, four successive heirs were of a dissolute and wasteful disposition, and the family ruin was eventually completed by a gambler in the days of the Regency. Nothing was left save a few acres of ground and the two-hundred-year-old house, which is itself crushed under a heavy mortgage. The last squire dragged out his existence there, living the horrible life of an aristocratic pauper. But his only son, my stepfather, seeing that he must adapt himself to the new conditions, obtained an advance from a relative, which enabled him to take a medical degree and went out to Calcutta, where, by his professional skill and his force of character, he established a large practice. In a fit of anger, however, caused by some robberies, which had been perpetrated in the house, he beat his butler to death and narrowly escaped a capital sentence. As it was, he suffered a long term of imprisonment and afterwards returned to England a morose and disappointed man. When Dr. Roylott was in India, he married my mother, Mrs. Stoner, the young widow of Major General Stoner. My sister Julia and I were twins, and we were only two years old at the time of my mother's remarriage. She had a considerable sum of money, not less than a thousand pounds a year, and this she bequeathed to Dr. Roylott entirely while we resided with him with a provision that a certain annual sum should be allowed to each of us in the event of our marriage. Shortly after our return to England, my mother died. She was killed eight years ago in a railway accident near Crewe. Dr. Roylott then abandoned his attempt to establish himself in practice in London and took us to live with him in the old ancestral house at Stoke Moran. The money which my mother had left was enough for all our wants, and there seemed to be no obstacle to our happiness. But a terrible change came over our stepfather about this time. Instead of making friends, and exchanging visits with our neighbors 
who had at first been overjoyed to see a roylot of Stoke back in the old family seat. He shut himself up in his house and seldom came out, save to indulge in ferocious quarrels with whoever might cross his path. Violence of temper approaching to mania has been hereditary in the men of the family. And in my stepfather's case, it had, I believe, been intensified by his long residence in the tropics. A series of disgraceful brawls took place, two of which ended in the police court, until at last he became the terror of the village and the folks would fly at his approach, for he is a man of immense strength and absolutely uncontrollable with his anger. Last week, he hurled the local blacksmith over a parapet into a stream, and it was only by paying over all the money which I could gather together that I was able to avert another public exposure. He had no friends at all, save the gypsies, and he would give these gypsies leave to encamp upon the few acres of bramble-covered land which represent the family estate, and would accept in return the hospitality of their tents, wandering away with them sometimes for weeks on end. He has a passion also for Indian animals, which are sent over to him by a correspondent, and he has at this moment a cheetah and a baboon, which wander freely over his grounds and are feared by the villagers almost as much as their master. You can imagine from what I say that my poor sister Julia and I had no great pleasure in our lives. No servant would stay with us, and for a long time we did all the work of the house. She was but thirty at the time of her death, and yet her hair had already begun to whiten, even as mine has. Your sister is dead then. She died just two years ago, and it is of her death that I wish to speak to you. You can understand that. Living the life which I have described, we were little likely to see anyone of our own age and position. We had, however, an aunt, my mother's maiden sister, Miss Honora Westvale, who lives near Harrow, and we were occasionally allowed to pay short visits at this lady's house. Julia went there at Christmas two years ago and met there a half-pay major of Marines to whom she became engaged. My stepfather learned of the engagement when my sister returned and offered no objection to the marriage. But within a fortnight of the day which had been fixed for the wedding, the terrible event occurred which has deprived me of my only companion. Sherlock Holmes, 
had been leaning back in his chair with his eyes closed and his head sunk in a cushion, but he half opened his lids now and glanced across at his visitor. Pray, be precise as to details, said he. It is easy for me to be so. For every event of that dreadful time is seared into my memory. The manor house is, as I have already said, very old, and only one wing is now inhabited. The bedrooms in this wing are on the ground floor, the sitting rooms being in the central block of the buildings. Of these bedrooms, the first is Dr. Roylott's, the second, my sister's, and the third, my own. There is no communication between them, but they all open out into the same corridor. Do I make myself plain? Perfectly so. The windows of the three rooms open out upon the lawn. That fatal night, Dr. Roylott had gone to his room early, though we knew that he had not retired to rest, or my sister was troubled by the smell of a strong cigar which it was custom for him to smoke. She left her room and came into mine where she sat for some time chatting about her approaching wedding. At eleven o'clock she rose to leave, but she paused at the door and looked back. Tell me, Helen, said she, have you ever heard anyone whistle in the dead of the night? Never, said I. I suppose that you could not possibly whistle yourself in your sleep. Certainly not, but why? Because during the last few nights I have always, about three in the morning, heard a low, clear whistle. I am a light sleeper, and it has awakened me. I cannot tell where it came from. Perhaps from the next room. Perhaps from the lawn. I thought that I would just ask you whether you heard it.